This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Today is a special day. Uh, a homecoming of sorts, um, a Zoom homecoming, if that is possible, um, because today uh, I, I'm really excited to have um, Rigel Robinson, uh, former UC Berkeley student, current member of the UC Berkeley City Council, uh, come and speak to us about uh, all manner of things. Uh, I have lots of questions for him, some of which are uh, very serious and some of which are less so. My my major beef, I'll just put it out there right up front, Rigel, is when is the city council going to ban those stupid delivery robots? We're working on it. We're getting there. I hate those things. I hate There's them. a few other things a little higher on the agenda right now, but... How is that possible? <laughs> on it. <laughs> I, I, I refer to them as scab bots, but, like, I, I absolutely despise those things. But, right, so and like, you know, on, on principle, on I mean, yeah... You, labor questions, technology, surveillance, what have you. But, I mean, you can agree they're adorable, right? No. <laughs> they're, 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 coolers with, they're coolers with wheels. <laughs> I hate them. Anyways, okay, so obviously starting off with a very <laughs> serious controversy here. But let's get a proper introduction <laughs> uh, to Rigel before uh, to anything else. So uh, just to offer you this, Berkeley, uh, Rigel Robinson is a Berkeley City Council member who was elected to represent District 7. On November 6, 2018, uh, he was elected at the age of 22, making Robinson the youngest person to ever serve on the Berkeley City Council. Now, prior to this, he was a student at UC Berkeley, he graduated in 2018 and was the president of the ASUC uh, while he was here. Um, now, prior to this election, right, he was a uh, uh, Robinson was a leader in student efforts to support development of more affordable housing and uh, particularly student housing to divest the University of California from the Dakota Access Pipeline to oust a UC regent accused of sexual harassment and secure additional state funding for the UC and produce the first tuition decrease in 20 years. Robinson, uh, I think importantly, uh, grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and there's a tremendous amount uh, to talk about in terms of St. Louis politics that we can also uh, think about. And um, you can, of course, keep up with Rigel and all of his doings um, on his, you know, admittedly fabulous Twitter feed, which is at Rigel Robinson. I think he has, a, he has a great Twitter feed. He wins the Berkeley City Council for the best Twitter feed. But uh, some of these are my favorite examples. This one, I love the the proximity to power shot uh, up here about, you know, these two photos are pretty great because there's, you know, there you are in the background sort of close to Biden. Um, and then the photo with then Senator Harris has the worst lighting I think I have ever seen really in the formal line. <laughs> um, you know, there's an image of you outside of... Uh, um, uh, Kamala Harris's uh, childhood home, which I think is fascinating, and then the you know the the you know you are one you do hit manage to nail these memes of you know testifying before the Berkeley City Council to sitting on the Berkeley City Council uh, and these things. And just so we're clear here about what the district is, Rigel represents District Seven. This is the the map of the city of Berkeley, and it, I'll ask him to describe the district in some detail um, going forward. But this is him down here, uh, which is the primary the South Side uh, the student district. Um, and, uh, you know, I think like the, this is just a good opportunity to talk about student politics, about local politics, about what it is to run for office, what it is to actually govern in a city like Berkeley. Um, and to that point, I want to just play a brief video 
that serves as Rigel's pinned tweet. And I, I promised him that I would not just make an endless series of um, Parks and Rec jokes, but this this really is, I think, just mwah. All right. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rigel Robinson, Berkeley City Council member. The best part of my job is reading constituent mail from Berkeley residents who write to me every day about the issues they care about most. Let's see what we got. As a teen librarian who works with youth passionate about inclusion and grateful for all your work, I am also dismayed, naively, to learn you were met not just with gratitude, but also by hatred. Continue to fight the good fight. That's so sweet. Okay, next we have, this is from San Jose. Not exactly a constituent, but that's okay. They sent me the magic horse, a Persian fable the entire fable. It appears to be about a prince who tried to ride a magic horse before he knew how. Okay, we have Houston, Texas. Is city council members really that stupid? Liberalism is a mental disorder. Okay, John, that's useful. Next we have Bruce from Mainville, Ohio. Dear Rigel, sounds like the inmates are running the asylum in can't wait for Tucker Carlson to soon chew you up and spit you out. Thank you, Bruce. Okay. From Ron, God one day will judge you. You idiots should ban yourselves. Sincerely, Ron, Trump supporter. This is sweet. This one has, there's a bunch of stickers on the back that say, good job, bravo, super. Do we call boys sucking each other off early girl parade? You need to get a life. Either you're so fucking stupid or just four. Or maybe you need a cock up your ass. They, uh, they sent me porn. They, they printed out printed out thumbnails of porn and glued it to the letter. That's that's amazing. Oh my god. Okay. 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 <laughs> This has been fun. Thank you all so much for writing. You can always write to me with questions, concerns, or ideas for the future of District 7. Have a great day. <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm going to sorry, we'll, I'm going to stop laughing now. <laughs> um as you as you can see, like I just found that utterly priceless. Um, but it is my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce Steve Rachel Robinson. Let him, uh, I'm sure he, he looks like he's going to get more mail. Well, I, I think I kept that one. It's, it's, it's in here somewhere. It's, it's important to me. <laughs> that might you. Thank you, professor. Fantastic to be here. Good to see you all. Uh, professor Jai Raman, fantastic to meet you. Uh, send Amy Poehler my regards. Professor Cohen, great to see you again. For the rest of you, uh, Professor Cohen and I first met during our um, the war we were waging against Milo Yiannopoulos during the great uh, free speech gate sagas of 2016-17. Uh, Love that. Love that. <laughs> it's good to see you all again. All right, it's fantastic to join you all. Fantastic to be here to answer that timeless question. What is city? Who knows? Who's to say? Um, Professor Cohen uh, got you to the, the first key base here. This is the city of Berkeley, a, a map you all should know well. And if you look to this fun little shape, it's sort of a block with like a boot 
or an elbow. I call it the tentacle. People don't like that. That is District 7, my uh, my sweet home, which really has an interesting story to it that we'll, we'll get into in a little bit. Um, so yes, I'm a city council member for the city of Berkeley, graduated from Cal in 2018. Uh, which has been a complicated journey. Um, but even the bare structure of the city council of Berkeley is, is worth digging into for just a moment. Most cities of our size, you know, we're a city of only around 120,000 people. Most cities have a, a five person city council structure with most council members elected at large and maybe even having a, a rotating mayorship rather than a, a mayor that's elected citywide. In Berkeley for years now, we've had a district system of elections, recognizing that each of our neighborhoods have such profound localized issues, uh, which creates a real opportunity for every council member to really be a very direct and responsive representative for their for their district. You know, the, um, the issues we deal with at the, uh, at the waterfront and, uh, you know, along the, the manufacturing sector of West Berkeley are so fundamentally different from the, the severe fire risk and the concerns that residents in the, the hills have, which are in turn so different from challenges we're dealing with in, in South Berkeley and, and Southside and downtown. But District 7 looks the way that it does today for a particular sort of novel and exciting reason. Um, District 7 you know, covering the UC Berkeley campus and the bulk of the Southside neighborhood has for years, uh, for decades really, been colloquially called the student district. It had always been the most student dense, always had the most students living in it, uh, but for years had not been represented by anyone with a particular lens or grasp on the student experience. Uh, and so some years ago, students led a campaign to redraw the lines of District 7, a redistricting measure to make it even more student focused, to create the first student supermajority district in the entire country with the vision that, that one day uh, students would elect one of their own uh, to be their voice on the student council or on the, uh, on the city council. There had been one student elected to the, uh, the city council prior. You might know Nancy Skinner. She's our state senator today. Um, when she was a grad student at Cal, she, she was elected to the city council. And that was before districts exist, which made that even that much more exciting. So she was elected at large to the city council. But since then, since the creation of districts, it, uh, it hadn't happened once. That's me, small me being small a couple years ago in the uh, the Senate chambers in Eshelman, um, shenaniganizing. And so I, you know, I moved here from, from St. Louis. Um, a, lot of, a lot of Berkeley in the family, actually, which is really interesting. Both my grandparents on my dad's side and my great-grandmother, actually, and my cousin uh, went to Berkeley. It had always been sort of a, a dream school of mine. I was, I was really lucky to, to come out here. Um, and became really entrenched in, in student organizing spaces, the, the student government as well. Um, and you know, I, I have an interesting time wondering what I'd be up to right now had I not ended up running for, for city council. But my, my senior year, a weird combination of my, my friends and, and older activists in the city who were ready for a change in, in this seat, uh, basically bullied me into running for city council because the seat was coming up for, for reelection. And so because in 2014, those students had passed that redistricting measure to redraw the lines of District 7. This was the first election in 2018 using that new map that had been created in 2014. Um, and so after much jockeying around, you know, I think uh, I remember kind of charting out the arc from the first time someone told me that I should run for it to the moment that I kind of decided, 
yeah, I, I guess we're, we're doing this. I mean, it was like nine months, um, but we, we were all in and, uh, and built this, this fantastic campaign team of all students, um, you know, none of whom had been paid campaign staff on a campaign before. None of us really had any idea what we were doing, kind of made it up as we went. And I announced, if you look at the little date tag on the top, I think April 26th, I think that was the week before finals my senior year, just really did not want to study. And maybe my greatest act of procrastination decided to run for the city council. And that uh, that worked out okay. Um, it, was, it was a really interesting race and a very strange experience. Um, but upon my election became the, uh, the youngest city council member to serve the city in ever, which is real bizarre. Um, so that's me. That's uh, that's what our council meetings used to look like, you know, in the before times and the good times. This is what they look like now, which is great. Uh, I was actually sitting in this chair last night. Uh, our council meetings are Tuesday nights, which means I'm a little sort of like cognitively hungover every Wednesday morning, uh, if that's apparent at all. Um, but we're here to talk about what the city council does and why. Um, if you watch Parks and Rec, you honestly probably have a pretty good sense already. Um, it's weird. I can't watch the show anymore. It's it's not it's not as funny to me because Berkeley is so much more ridiculous, which is such a shame. Um, but you know, we uh, much of it much of it really is a in part a, a ceremonial role. You know, there's there's wholesome things we get to do like like talk to kids and read to them and serve food at soup kitchens and give people proclamations when they deserve them, hang out with firefighters, go on field trips, look at science, build things, talk to people, point at the governor. Um, but that's that's the, the easy part. Um, so I, I have a little slide deck here that I, I use with middle schoolers and, and whoever to, to walk through some of the kind of broad uh, subject areas and, and turf that we've, we've hit on just in the two years I've been around. But I know we want to carve out most of today for some, some Q&A. So I'm going to try to blitz through this as quickly as I can, because if I don't, it'll take the whole time. I can ramble. It is my only skill. Um, but we're going to look at homelessness, housing, and environmentalism a little bit, and then try to get into some of the, the nature of, of this year. And I think the, the biggest thesis that you'll find in, in recurring ways is that the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has, has flipped everything on its head. Um, and we've done a really incredible job responding to it. Uh, but part of what that has also meant has been uh, reorienting staff time and budget allocations from so much of the work that was you know, top of the agenda last year to the pandemic response. And so much of that work as a result now is, is in a lot of ways frozen. Um, and that, that is what it is. Uh, let's touch on homelessness a little bit. Um, you, know, you, you cannot be a resident in Berkeley. You, you can't even be a, a visitor in Berkeley. You can't walk through a block of the city of Berkeley without being confronted head on with the, uh, the intensity of the homelessness crisis here. Um, There's a headline uh, I want you all to, to absorb. Berkeley's homeless population jumped 13% in the past two years. This was a piece that ran uh, following one of our more recent point in time counts in 2019. What was even more fascinating and in certain ways devastating and in certain ways comforting about that number was learning that 13% was actually the smallest increase of a city in our county. I mean, that is a massive increase in two years, but countywide we'd seen even bigger jumps, which is to say that you know these problems, it's 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 about holding back 
the tide. It's it's an immense wave that's truly, truly a regional crisis. Uh, but we do have reason to believe that many of the interventions and the work that's happening in Berkeley are working. But there are moments that, uh, you know, there, there are cracks and, and moments that we can we can see the city falling through too. Um, I dig a little into the RV crisis that uh, dominated much of the discourse the last couple of years, especially. Um, I'm not even sure. I think I think I might have taken this picture. I, I don't recall. I've done a couple uh, kind of site visits um, down to West Berkeley, where where so many of them are concentrated. Um, at our best guesstimate, there's around 200 RVs scattered across the city, but for the most part in West Berkeley, that are uh, inhabited. And, you know, people are people are living in them. It is their homes. Um, many of them are families. And actually, one of the best ways that we have a sense of uh, yeah, how many folks are, are living in there is via BUSD, via the public schools. We know that there are a lot of kids um, who are parts of families living out of their vehicles in, in West Berkeley. And it's it's a, a really incredible and, and heartbreaking population, much of which is, is pretty well organized. They, they call themselves the, the Friends on Wheels, which is so wonderful. Um, but you know, a, a lot of these folks are yeah, very put together. Many of them are are fully gainfully employed, um, but had made a very specific calculation when faced with eviction, when faced with knowing that maybe they were going to run out of rent in two or three months and uh, lose their living situation to, to go in on the most stable thing that they could find, which was for their situation, an RV, just an opportunity to make sure that their their kids still had shelter. Uh, maybe they still had some, some mobility, uh, but for the most part, we're able to, to keep themselves, you know, for, by, for all intents and purposes, they, they are homeless. They are homeless people, but not uh, living on the streets per se, which, uh, which has value. But um, over the last several years, there have been a, a certain uproar and uh, you know, upswell of complaints from homeowners, residents in many of these neighborhoods, that there were too many people living in their neighborhood, living on their block, living in RVs. And that escalated and escalated and escalated to the point that a item was brought to the council to uh, to effectively ban people from living in RVs in the city of Berkeley. It would make it impossible to, to inhabit an RV and to have it parked anywhere for, for more than 72 hours. So you either have to be rotating around constantly or just move to, a, move to another city. And um, that vote passed six to three. Myself and two other council members dissented from it uh, in believing really that that this this item, this approach, you know, wasn't what a regional approach to homelessness looks like. That we could play hot potato with these hundreds of people's lives until the sun explodes, but that's not going to fix anything. I mean, us doing this basically would have just scattered these same residents to to Oakland, to Emeryville, until it escalated enough that they made a similar decision there, and it would bounce back to us. And I, I bring up this issue often in part because I, I think it gets to the crux of what's so unique in a lot of ways about local government and the decisions that have to be made here. You know, there's nothing particularly partisan about the, the decision to, to authorize or to reject a ban like this. Um, and I, I honestly think you know, a lot of the, uh, the, the homeowners who, who led the, the opposition to these people, you know, it's, it's the heart of you know, nimbyism in, in a lot of ways. It, you know, it wasn't driven by a macro sense of the homelessness crisis. It was driven by their own sense about their their literal home and their lived space. And you, know, you can understand that it would be frustrating for someone to to have someone else basically living right next to their their front lawn. And so you know I, I empathize with that. But the 
the impacts of what they're asking for were only going to make the homelessness crisis worse. And, and so predictably, the um, region sort of erupted because the city of Berkeley made a terrible decision. Um, this is a council member from, from Emeryville uh, thanking those of us that opposed the ban. Um, this is the president of the city council in Oakland. Uh, yeah, making very clear, like, this is not what a regional approach to the homelessness crisis looks like. Like, our cities should be working together to find better solutions for these people, not, not playing hot potato with their lives. Um, and so, months later, we were effective in basically getting the ban reversed. When the item came up for a, for a second reading, um, worked in language to effectively indefinitely delay enforcement in any form. Um, so the ban has, has really, for all intents and purposes, not gone into effect. Um, but there was a moment there where it was, it was the will of the majority of the council to instate it. And that was very much the council's intent. And fortunately, we've, we've grown from that. And the focus now with, with the county and our, our neighboring cities has been to, to focus on identifying safe parking zones uh, so that these folks can, can live with a little, little stability in their lives. Um, but even in a place such as Berkeley, uh, that was a decision that, that unfortunately the city was, was ready and willing to make, uh, and I hope was a, a wake-up call for, for all of us. Worth noting, of course, that uh, much of that work too has been slowed down and bogged down by the uh, by the pandemic. You know, many of the same folks that would be the the staff working on staffing up a, a safe parking location uh, have been occupied with dozens and dozens and dozens of other things uh, related to COVID nineteen. So we haven't seen as much movement on that since as we would like. But the the big win is you know the enforcement is not happening. These people have not been evicted from our city. Let's touch to on. Oh yeah, this uh, is able to visit the um, one of the safe parking sites that uh, that Oakland has launched already, uh, which is really instructive. It just you know these are these are incredible people living on the brink, really just doing what they can to to stay sheltered uh, yeah, under under the strangest of circumstances. Um, yeah, tough tough situation. Let's talk housing a little bit. Obviously, very related. Uh, does anyone recognize that corner? You want to unmute yourself and yell it at me. Ten points to whoever. There's no points. Is it the Walgreens? It is. Was that a kill? Ten points to a kill. Good work. That is the Walgreens. You might not even recognize it right now because the uh, the bricks outside don't look anything like that anymore. Uh, you know, they recently renovated the uh, the entire Bart Station Plaza. But yes, that is Walgreens providing a critical and invaluable service to our community as a Walgreens. I, I kind of mean that. I, I got my flu shot there a couple weeks ago. Um, but this is what is planned uh, for that site uh, imminently. Um, it's, a, I think, a 272-unit apartment building um, and, and is in so many ways, is in so many ways just perfect. I mean, it's, it's a massive, uh, massive apartment building right on the BART station. I mean, you talk about transit-oriented development. It literally does not get more transit-oriented than being literally on a BART station. It would replace a couple second-floor office space, so there's no displacement questions. You know, there's no, uh, we actually have a, a very strict demolitions ordinance that, um, that makes it next to impossible to, to destroy, say, you know, rent-controlled housing, for example, to, to build luxury new condos or, or whatever you're looking at. Um, and the, the Walgreens actually is expected to be able to move back in on the ground floor. 
someday when that breaks ground. Um, and the project would contribute $10.3 million to the city's affordable housing trust fund, which is the pool of monies that we use to build supportive housing for the homeless uh, and affordable units all over the city. Um, we actually just broke ground on a project at a it's at Berkeley Way. It's like right by, if you've ever gone to the, the Korean fried chicken place at uh, Banchan, it's it's why there's so much construction happening in the parking lot right next door. That's the one, um, which we're only able to build because of affordable housing trust fund monies that we extract from developers basically every time a new project anywhere gets built. Um, so, you know, a rather elegant uh, proposal that came before us, again, replacing just a little bit of office space with a massive amount of new housing literally on the BART station in the middle of a housing crisis, uh, but that got a little bit complicated. The um, the hearing when we when we heard this building, um, so there's a there's a zoning adjustments board of the city. It's basically their job to say yes or no to every building that gets proposed in the city of Berkeley. They said a big resounding yes to this project, um, and then that got appealed. So it comes up to the city council for the city council to say yes or no to this building, and. I have never seen a more perfectly bifurcated, disparate, I mean, almost, truly almost segregated public comment section for really almost any, probably literally any item that I've, uh, that I've heard on the city council in the last two years. I mean, you had upwards of a hundred people easily, maybe close to two come out to speak about this project, which, uh, which makes sense. It's a, it's a significant project. Um, and it was it was really almost this simple. You had dozens and dozens and dozens of young people, many of them them students, uh, students of color, especially um, housing advocates, coming to support this project. Usually for either one of two reasons. Yeah, you know, they're they're sort of the supply side housing advocates who you know who believe that just you know more units period is always a, a net good. And yeah, that argument is compelling for this building. And there's the, the affordable housing advocates who are most compelled by the fact that you know this would be the biggest contribution to our affordable housing trust fund of any project in recent memory. You know, $10.3 million, there's there's a lot you can do with that. So they were really married to making sure that this project went through. So we were able to to use those monies to to build supportive housing for the homeless. That was one group. And then you had dozens and dozens and dozens of, and I mean this almost exclusively old white homeowners in the Berkeley Hills coming out to this meeting to demand that the project fail because it's a big building and there's a corner of the building. It's right in the heart of downtown. There's a corner of the building that when you're standing at the base of the Campanile and looking out at the Golden Gate Bridge, it's a beautiful view. It's part of why the campus is built where it is. Um, as you're looking out at that bridge, should this building be built, there's a corner of the building that would cut into a little part of your view of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and that was very offensive to people. So you have dozens of housing advocates coming out and saying, you know, we know it's a big project. We know it looks and smells like gentrification, but this is this is what we need. This is part of the solution to our housing crisis in Berkeley. And dozens of old white folks in the hills saying, you absolutely cannot do this because you're going to infringe on our view um, that is so sacred and tear apart everything that makes Berkeley special. Um, and it just it became such a bizarre sort of dichotomy as you know, you're hearing that. And then students after hearing that are coming up to the dais saying, we're the ones who walk by the Campanile every day. We're the ones on that campus who enjoy that view every day. 
We love that view too, but we would literally so much rather sacrifice a couple inches of it if it would help put a dent, even a tiny little dent in our housing crisis here in Berkeley. Uh, and it was it was approved. We approved the building. It will break ground hopefully in the next year. It was a six to three vote, I think. Um, and people people didn't take that very well. This is a uh, an article that ran shortly after from a, a publication that one of our friends in the Hills runs. Uh, ASUC a-holes adopt modern equivalent of blackface for council hearing. I don't know what that means. I'm not gonna get into the irony of an old white lady accusing students, many of them of color, literally including several black students of blackface for supporting housing and affordable housing in Berkeley. I'm not gonna get into that, but it it is what it is. And I, I bring this up to, to paint some of the divisions we have in our city too. There's, um, you know, Berkeley is a, a progressive icon in, in so many ways, but it also, you know, statewide, particularly in conversations around housing development, you know, we are the butt of every joke about nimbyism. There's few places that can that can claim that mantle better, um, and it, it really it really showed itself on on this project, but also as we'll get into um, for some some much more modest developments that are that are worth talking about. Uh, this is a map that I imagine many of you have seen. This is the redlining map of the uh, the East Bay. You might know this line quite well if you can see my cursor. So this, you know, we're looking at the whole bay here, you know, Berkeley, Emeryville, Oakland, Alameda. Um, this line here uh, is the line above which, if you were black or Asian or a person of color, you could not, you could not live, uh, period, full stop. Um, that is a street that was called Grove Street, and then the city symbolically renamed it Martin Luther King Way, uh, and in doing so, ended racism. Um, so yeah, you know, redlining explicitly is, is not legal, of course, anymore. Um, but what we find really fascinating is the relationship that redlining still has to our, our zoning maps in cities like Berkeley and all over the country today. Uh, zoning maps that basically make it impossible to build housing that's affordable to middle-income families in huge stretches of the city, like the bulk of the hills or much of the, the Elmwood and the Claremont. And so we've been tackling this um, this really gentle project to allow some modest density across the entire city. Uh, it's an initiative we call the, the Missing Middle uh, Housing Initiative uh, to enable whether it's duplexes, triplexes, or, or fourplexes in neighborhoods that right now are just zoned for, uh, for single family housing, which is a huge chunk of the city. Um, it's a project that's been, uh, that's been taken up in a, a number of places. Um, Minneapolis, I believe, was actually the first city to scrap single-family zoning citywide. Uh, and recently, I think Oregon, like the entire state, I don't recall if it was by way of their state legislature or, or a ballot initiative, um, did the same thing. So now the, the bottom rung of the zoning map is, uh, is a duplex, which basically means you know the, the potential for what you could build on that site and the potential home value, the potential... Uh, you know, income that a family would need to to move into that neighborhood is halved, which is a huge piece of our you know, the the much broader integration conversation. And, you know, so many of our our neighborhoods today are are literally more segregated organically and often uh, you know, by way of zoning than they were when explicit segregation by race was the practice and legal, which is nuts. So we've been we've been chipping away at that, but you know we we often get 
bluntly almost the, the same sorts of extreme reactions to even modest changes in how neighborhoods are planned that we do when you're looking at a you know a, a tower in the middle of downtown Berkeley. You know, concerns that uh it's gonna tear apart the the neighborhood character of the of the hills or or the Elmwood and that uh and that letting middle income people move in will be tragedy for the for the schools or the block or what have you it's it's tough it's a lot but we're working on it um and getting there uh and you know part of the the huge nexus here naturally too is is its relationship to, to climate policy um much of the sprawl that we've seen in the the deeper outer bay area is because cities like like berkeley for for decades um and San Francisco especially have uh, you know, have not done enough to, to build affordable housing within their own city limits as job growth in the area has boomed. So there's nexuses upon nexuses here, um, which segues nicely into a couple of the environmental projects we've been working on just the last couple of years that I'll, I'll breeze through. Um, that is one of my favorite headlines. Berkeley has no more forks to give. Um, oh, I was supposed to weave the thread the needle. Okay. You know, rewind three seconds. We're working on this missing middle housing project, but it's frozen because of the pandemic. That's the recurring theme that I'm supposed to bring up more often. There we go. And which brings us to the uh, the single use disposables ordinance we passed a year or two ago. Um, you might have heard about it. It's just starting to be implemented right now. The city of Berkeley passed the most ambitious uh, ordinance related to single use disposables, basically requiring that all eateries, food businesses in the city, um, either move to you know, uh, reusable foodware options uh, within their shops, or that all single-use disposable foodware uh, be compostable, um, which is nice. and was, uh, was a very big deal, and a bunch of cities have picked up since then. That was one of the most beautiful meetings I've ever been to. This is uh, my favorite class of fourth graders. I was actually zooming into their classroom just to uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, most of these kids are fifth graders now, but the, the classroom's still around. Um, you all are doing great. A Zoom classroom of fourth graders is a sight for the eyes. It's incredible that anyone, it's, that's its own thing. Um, but it was so beautiful. You get these, uh, you know, these 10 year olds, these nine year olds coming up to the dais, demanding us saying, you, know, you, you adults, which I think is a funny thing to call me. You adults need to, to get your act together and clean up the planet because it's it's our future. It's our oceans we're talking about. And they were, they were so passionate, it was wonderful. Um, and that little that little trash bin that um, our friend is holding up is the entirety of the waste that that classroom had generated for an entire school year. Uh, so this teacher like teaches the classroom to be to be zero waste. And it's, it's so wonderful, they're great at it. Anyway, um, we approved that, and now it's basically not going anywhere because we were on the cusp of rolling it out when the pandemic struck and suddenly takeout food became uh, just the, the name of the game, and it suddenly became an entirely, it was such an ordeal, such a battle that honestly was done so, so elegantly and so well to get the small business community on board with this proposal to convince them that they could they could adopt these practices and it might be revenue neutral or maybe even a savings for them in the long run, that was a huge undertaking. And that suddenly became an entirely unreasonable ask when the pandemic struck. And every one of our small businesses has been living on the brink just trying to get by, let alone roll out some dramatic new program. So we're hoping we're hoping we'll be able to, to see this in, in full swing soon. But uh, 
much like everything else, it's on hold. Um, you also might have heard about the uh, the initiative we passed a little ago to become the first U.S. city to ban natural gas in new construction, um, which we've seen some couple dozen cities take up in the states already. Um, Jay Inslee liked it, which is nice. Thanks, Jay. Um, also a beautiful meeting. We signed it. This is me talking about it at a public comment at a Seattle city council meeting while I was on vacation because I have no self-control. Um, exciting stuff going on. Uh, and then I'll just breeze quickly to, you know, some of the, the public transit initiatives happening in the area too. Um, as you all can understand, public transit has a, a massive nexus to, to environmentalism, um, you know, especially in a city like Berkeley, our best guesstimate is that transportation represents something like 60% of our emissions as a city. So getting people to the greatest extent possible out of private combustion engine vehicles is such a huge piece of the climate question. Um, and a city like Berkeley, we're, we're lucky to, to already have a, a really robust uh, transit network, but it can always go so much further talking about, you know, whether it's, it's fare-free transit or the, the routes themselves. This I like to bring up because it, it again, um, it gets to some of the, the simultaneous ambition and also regressiveness of a place such as Berkeley. Um, Tempo, this is uh, the bus rapid transit line that was proposed uh, around 2000 to connect in a beautiful way, Berkeley to Oakland and to San Leandro in one incredible BRT, bus rapid transit corridor. These buses are magical. So what they do, you get these um, bus only lanes in the middle of your arterial. Um, and the big key here is that when they build out this system, the bus talks to the traffic signals. The traffic signals talk to the bus. So when this bus is going down its route, it never has a red light. It's like that scene in Eagle Eye. It's just green lights uh, until you're in Berkeley, um, which has you know an incredible, incredible implications for for commuters across the region. Um, the university was very invested in it. You know, we have professors and faculty that live all over the East Bay that need to drive into Berkeley, and then that creates a massive need for parking spaces in Berkeley on limited university land that they would like to use for other things. Um, so there was a, a massive investment and a, a, you know, interest in this project happening. That was in 2000. In 2010, the final proposals come forward and the city of Berkeley cuts itself off from the plan and says, actually, we don't want anything to do with this because they were worried about losing some parking spaces along Telegraph and the noise impacts of the construction. And I'm sure to some people that felt like the right decision at the time, um, but the rest of the project uh, carried forward. And so the bus rapid transit route connecting Oakland to San Leandro just opened a couple months ago. Of course, a decade on from that decision, a decade on from the inception of the project, these things happen slowly. But today there is consensus among planners and really among today's city council, I think, that, that Berkeley made the wrong choice in 2010 by withdrawing from this project um, and that that has, has lasting implications. And as a result, you know, we will not see this, uh, this key transit connector that you know, had the opportunity to, to really be a, you know, a, a powerful medium for, for commutes for so many people across the Bay in a, in a greener way than, than driving to, to campus or, or wherever. Um, you know, so we, we make a lot of decisions that it's, it's easy to be, to be, for your judgment to be clouded by the, the immediate impacts. Um, but the, the long-term picture is always, always, always so key.
Um, related to that is a little project we're working on to, to redesign Telegraph Avenue into a shared street. Um, beautiful stuff, touching on street lighting in the area. Um, but that's all to say that's so much, everything I've just named um, is pretty much frozen. Um, as you can imagine, nothing since March has, has looked the same. Um, and in, in ways that for the most part, I think you can probably predict. I'll touch a little bit on, on testing, support for our small businesses, and Black Lives Matter. Um, I actually just got my 11th test yesterday. For those of you that are in Berkeley, we're so lucky. It is so easy. Um, I guess you all have the, uh, the Tang Center too. Yeah, it, uh, get tested. It's a great time. Um, we've been incredibly lucky in Berkeley in, in so many ways. I think coming into the pandemic, you know, there are so many factors that with our understanding of the virus, you know, it looked like really just set us up for failure. We are an urban area with a, you know, a robust public transit network. Um, we're a very international region. You know, we have a close relationship to two massive airports very close to the city. There's a lot of travel in and out of here. Um, we also have a gigantic, massive public university. Um, this is a headline that the student newspaper at the University of North Carolina ran. They have been in a very different situation from us, battling outbreaks all over the place. You see how I took the, the UC seal to cover up the, the UC? I thought that was clever. Um, anyway, I mean, that's it's almost the exact opposite of the relationship that we've had to our campus. Berkeley has, in so many ways, you know, I'm sure they can always be doing more, but really successfully prevented um, the massive outbreaks that we know have happened at campuses all over the place. And there is tension nonetheless. Uh, this is a fun email I got from... Uh, I shouldn't say who this is from. Um, <laughs> there is a, uh, you know, it's been an interesting project navigating some of the, the neighbor tensions here um, from people who, who clearly don't believe that, uh, that the city of Berkeley is, is, a, is a home in a sense for, for many of our students. Um, I think one of the most important things that the campus did in the spring, especially when, when classes moved all, uh, online, was to not explicitly evict everyone from the residence halls. Uh, that's what Harvard did. Harvard did that. They gave everyone five days notice and everyone had to get out of the residence halls. Um, and you know, we have we have so many students for whom uh, you know, that may be the only home they have. They may not have somewhere else to, to go back to. Um, and they you know, really went above and beyond in, in that regard too. I know there were handfuls of students who were allowed to stay in the residence halls through the summer, uh, who otherwise, you know, in normal circumstances, would have had to leave at the end of the semester because they didn't have somewhere else to, to go back to. Um, so juggling that relationship with longer-term residents who are very fearful that you know, the, the student community is going to be the, the vector for a massive outbreak um, has been a challenge. Uh, but we're lucky that you know, much of what has contained the spread is a really robust uh, testing protocol, uh, which is pretty easy to tap into, cityofberkeley.info slash coronavirus. That's me swabbing myself. It's a great time. Go do it. Um, I touch on this tweet. It reads, if you're in Berkeley, please stop by Taco Sinaloa on Telegraph. They're making enough for rent, but not enough to pay their workers, so they might close down. Their tacos are bomb. If you're looking for a place to eat, check them out. I present that and ask each of you to close your eyes and replace in that tweet the words Taco Sinaloa with whatever your favorite small business is in Berkeley, because it is true of literally all of them. The, um, the list of uh, 
of permanent closures is uh, is growing. You know, we we lost Buffalo Exchange, we lost Daiso, we lost University Press Books. Um, right next to University Press Books as uh, the the musical offering cafe. Uh, I think it's Gene Spencer who who owns that, and Berkeley Side just did a, an incredible piece about them. They're they're on the brink, um, like so many folks in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, it's a combination of just the the raw impacts of the pandemic, but also you know the the acute impacts, particularly around campus of students for the most part not being around anymore and shopping in a very different way. Uh, so the city is is doing what we can to, to keep them afloat. We pulled together a, a relief fund, um, carving out everything that we could find within our own budget to, to offer grants to small businesses that were struggling. The challenge there is that every small business is struggling. So we were swamped with applications, wanted to provide what we could to as many of them as possible, but you give a grant to everyone and then the grant ends up being small enough that it, you know, it barely puts a dent in the in the situation for for anybody. But you know, we every every last little bit helps. Um, so we've also been focusing on you know, finding creative ways to make sure the businesses are able to operate to the extent they can safely. We were one of the first cities to to really launch and embark in a in an outdoor dining operation. Um, streamlining permits to, to make sure people could could build the parklets that they want to, to to be open in whatever capacity they could, um, which has been a challenge, but but going going very well. And of course, I would be remiss not to note uh, you know, just how much this this reinvigorated movement for for racial justice this year um, has has transformed the discourse, you know, among my own city council, but really for for cities all over the country. Um, it's been a a really incredible thing that's that's happened this year that you know has really put the pressure on on cities uniquely, almost more so than more so than state legislatures, more so than than Congress. And I think because in so many ways, you know, people are realizing that it's it's your city councils that with direct oversight over the departments um, that really have the agency to to create some of the changes that we're talking about. Um, and Berkeley's in a, a unique position to take a leading role. In, in so much of this work. Um, you know, the, the narrative especially, I mean, since the, the tragic murder of, of George Floyd, you know, has focused so much more fundamentally on, on the role of policing in our society, the nature of policing, the definition of a police officer. You know, people, are, people are tired of, of tinkering around the edges of uh, the reform efforts that have really characterized the, the last couple of years and the last couple of decades, really. Um, I think one, one point that illustrates that best here, you know, Berkeley, and I think uh, this article talked about that a little bit, was one of the first cities in the country to create a citizen review board for the, uh, the police department. That was novel and that was radical at the time, but that was decades ago. Uh, and so one of the ballot measures we had up this year was a measure to sort of modernize and reform that commission because it basically hadn't been touched since it was created. And in the years since, so many other cities have looked to what cities like Berkeley did uh, and adopted better versions of that. Uh, that's a recurring thread with a lot of what we do. You know, we, we did something really incredible a couple decades ago and have been sort of high off of that since. Uh, and in the meantime, have let our models kind of fall into disrepair. Um, one piece of all this that I'm particularly invested in, uh, you know, we're engaged in a, a massive reimagining process right now to really try to, to redefine the role of law enforcement in our society. I think there's three particular huge vectors that I think have, have a lot of promise, uh, and that's you know, homelessness response, mental health response, and traffic enforcement, which I think in many ways is the piece that is 
most exciting, most promising, and also the most fraught, uh, because there's virtually no precedent for what we're working on right now and trying to do. Um, you know, when you look to, to homelessness response, to mental health response, you know, you you look to programs like um, uh, Cahoots in Eugene, Oregon, which has done a, a really excellent job uh, basically carving out more and more of the role of a police officer in Eugene, Oregon, and designating you know, effectively uh, you know, social workers to, to answer those calls instead. Traffic enforcement, um, if we can pull this off, we would truly be the, uh, the first city in the country to, to make this work. Um, and I think it's uh, any, any conversation about changing the relationship that law enforcement officers have to, to, to residents is incomplete without a focus on traffic stops, I, I believe. I mean, it's, they are the single most common interaction that Americans have with police, period. It has to be a, a centerpiece of our of our work, and it also you know has been the the genesis of, of so many of the the most heartbreaking stories that have have dominated the the narrative around this for for years. You know, you look to uh, Sam Debose, Sandra Bland, I think Philando Castile too. You know, all pretextual traffic stops that escalated and went wrong. We can uh, we can end that, I think. Um. And <laughs> that's funny. I think because I was using these slides before the election, I had this in here. That's happened now. Uh, the election was a thing. We had a bunch of important matters on our ballot too, uh, all but one of which I think passed. I think they might still be counting HH, our utility users tax, um, might not have quite made it through. We're in good shape. Anyway, I'll wrap things up. Um, I, I present all this to, to show you in, in so many ways you know, the, the nature of my role and to, to sort of paint a, a thesis that I've come to just how grateful I am every day in this role that I ran. Um, it's a strange experience to, to know so concretely that I really feel like I have a, a different perspective on a lot of these issues than, than many of my colleagues, but one that is frankly shared by so many of our, our constituents and, and residents. Um, but also to, to paint a picture of just how accessible these roles can and should be. My election in November 2018 was, um, you know, that, that day was uh, exciting to me. Naturally, you know, I was on the ballot. It was the, the end of the election. But the most beautiful thing that happened that day to me um, was these three folks. Uh, it was Caitlin, Jocelyn, and Brian, three other uh, UC Berkeley alumni who were all, all four of us, we were running for office at the exact same time. Um, and, you know, keeping up with, with each of their races as they, as they announced earlier in the year. Um, you know, I, I, I read everything. I, I stalked their, their local newspapers. Um, you know, most folks would not have told you that, that any of them had, a had great odds. You know, they, they were candidates unlike the folks who, who usually won in their cities. Um, but that November election, each and every one of them was elected. And in retrospect, it's it's so obvious. So Caitlin, uh, Caitlin was I think three years older than me. Um, I met her my freshman year. She was graduating that year. Caitlin is now the only member of the school board in Petaluma, her hometown, uh, who actually attended the Petaluma public schools that she now governs. Uh, and Jocelyn, uh, who was running in, in Eastvale, she was a, a transfer student I met uh, at Cal. She is now the only Democrat. And I think the only woman on her city council. And Brian was my class, actually. Brian and I would uh, would get in trouble in the back of Bob Reich's lectures for 
working on other stuff and just kind of being there for eye clicker points. Um, Brian is uh, was elected to the Delano City Council, his hometown of Delano, where he's he's now. I mean, such a an incredible, outspoken, and overdue advocate for the immigrant communities in his city, particularly undocumented folks. And I think the first thing he did when he stepped into office was uh, was introduce his own city's uh, sanctuary city resolution. Uh, but each each one of these people, they um, you know, when they when they announced. Uh, you know, people didn't think they, they looked or sounded anything like the, the candidates who usually win, uh, but they won in landslides because they were the candidates that their residents and their voters had been had been waiting for. There had always been a need and a demand for a, for a voice like theirs, a candidate like theirs. It just took someone saying, uh, I can do better than what I'm seeing from the status quo, from what I'm seeing from my from my incumbents. Um, and it worked and it was a beautiful thing and they're all they're all doing great um and i present that to, to encourage each of you to you know, to think about to think about your own hometowns to think about your your relationship to your community um and, and ask yourself just bluntly if you if you like what you're seeing and uh and what you can do about it maybe anyway that's me um i don't know why i put my cell phone number on this slide don't make that a mistake but if, uh, if you ever want to be in touch about anything anything at all I'm not hard to find. <laughs> um, thank you. That was outstanding. Really, uh, I mean, both inspiring and detail-oriented. Well done. Well, I'll go ahead and ask you a question, Roger. <laughs> sure, please do. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, I don't know if the four, Brian, I know Brian. He was my executive assistant, actually. <laughs> Many no way. When he was at Cal, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, my God. He, um, he actually was the last person I saw before <laughs> before it became a crime to see your friends. Um, he was passing through the area in Berkeley. We, we got breakfast at, uh, at Betts, I think, in, in 4th Street. And then uh, I think the next day we, we figured out how shelter in place was going to work. Yeah. yeah so. Sorry, go on. Uh, no, I just, uh, I don't know if any of the four of you have already been like if any of the four of you are already very clear about kind of your trajectory politically, um, that, that would be interesting to know about. Yeah, um, yeah that's a really funny question. Um, well, I, my, my honest answer for myself is always that I have no idea what I'm doing and have never planned anything in my life more than a week ahead of time and wouldn't be in this role if not for friends who'd shoved me into it. Um, I'll say for, for each of the others, yeah, it, um, I, I think there's there's sort of a strange phenomenon being uh, young in a role like this um, that is so often designed for people who are already retired. You know, we're we're just, we're, we're shiny objects in a lot of ways, and you know, each one of us we we catch about catch up about this. You know, the the moment any of us were elected, you know, people start asking things like that, like, okay, so what, like Congress next? It's like I, I haven't even gone through orientation for this job, like. Oh my God, chill. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. Um, you, you mentioned Brian. Brian, especially, I, uh, I think his um, his member of Congress was uh, T.J. Cox, who just uh, flipped the seat. Um, he's looking on track to to probably lose his seat again. Um, I don't know. Brian's a very inspiring individual. Yeah. That would be that would be real spicy. I um, I have some ideas for him. <laughs> uh, well, what would you say to any of the students uh, in the class that are thinking about 
potentially a future in yeah. politics running. We'll yeah. Think about next first steps, how to think about it. That right. <laughs> um, do it. I'm sure you're all wonderful people and this line of work needs more good people. Uh, I don't know how to say that without subtweeting too many people I, I work with directly. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a challenging and very strange sphere. Uh, but I think one thing that's, that's been really instructive to me is just realizing the powerful extent to which there really are no qualifications for being a, a representative, an elected official. Um, in fact, I actually think it's, it's almost, I find often that, uh, lawyers I work with who are elected officials, um, think that because they're a lawyer, they're more qualified to to be an elected official than anyone else. You know, having you know, gone to law school, and now they can implement and, and write the law. Yeah, I find that's that's so often not the case. Um, and you know, I think you know the the whole country had a, a bit of a wake up call around that with um, you know, the the election and, and role of uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who's you know, whose most prominent job title prior to being a member of Congress um, was being a bartender and. She is, without question, one of the most effective members of that body today. And I, I notice exactly the same parallels on city councils all over the place, where you know someone like like Caitlin, who actually understands the schools that she's governing, even though she um, you know, only has a, a bachelor's degree and you know hasn't been uh, a PTA volunteer for three decades, uh, is able to to really shake up her board and and ground it in a powerful way that it that it needed. Yeah, I just want to temper that by saying, not temper it, but it add to it by saying um, everybody who wants to think, you know, think and and is thinking about it should definitely run. And not everybody needs to make change by running for office. Oh, absolutely. There's, yeah. You know, we, we need people. I They've been hearing from me about this all semester, but we need people in, in all different spaces in organizing, in social movement work. Um you know, in academia, we, we need good people everywhere. And running for office is not the only way to effectuate change. It's a wonderful way. And we're really glad you're here. Okay, Professor Cohen, you are back. I was just wondering about, you know, I, I caught the end of that, I think, really powerful conversation. But I'm just wondering, again, what, what did you, what really did you have to learn? And like, what, how did your Berkeley education provide you with the space to do this? In a lot of ways, maybe it's it's fortuitous that uh, that I did run because there's no GPA requirement for winning an election. I probably spent a little more time at Berkeley, preoccupied outside of the classroom than than in it. Um, but I will say, you know, so much of so much of of my Berkeley experience and, and so many of ours, you know, that the campus is a is a pressure cooker, um, and it it thickens your skin uh, a lot, no matter no matter what spaces or what academic discipline you, you find yourself in. Um, and interestingly, you know, I think those sorts of uh, skills and character traits are what set people up to, to do well in a role like this better than, than almost anything else. You know, I, I know, you know, there's no real qualifications per se, but there are values, traits um, that I think it's, it's really important for, for someone to have if you're going to do this role well. I mean, you need to be a hard worker, but most fundamentally a good listener and perhaps even more fundamentally than that be able to divorce the political from the from the personal and to not have a problem with people uh saying ridiculous things about you because if you if you agree with them on policy it, it doesn't that's all it's it's immaterial um it's a strange it's a strange very uh 
yeah, all the, the work we do is is fundamentally personal, but to do it well, you need to treat it impersonally, if that makes any sense at all. Even with uh, you know, my my colleagues on the on the council, every single one of them, yeah, you know, there is no one on the council that I agree with 100% of the time, which means with 100% of the people on the council, there's something I've disagreed with them on before, and you can never let a disagreement over one thing uh, make it harder for you to work together on what you're gonna need to work together on the week after which is hard and the opposite of how most relationships work. Um, but uh, yeah, Berkeley helped. I appreciate you bringing up in particular AOC and it, it is this kind of fascinating thing of the ways in which, you know, the party of the working man, the sort of Republican party of the working man at the same time seems to have such for, you know, ordinary people who seek to actually get into politics and make change. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, how you were received by the rest of the council being, you know, a student, being from Missouri, like, um, you know, just, you know, having, what we, are you sort of welcomed into the committee, you know, as, as someone, who, you know, who's not born and bred in Berkeley, but um, someone who's, you know, lived the life of a student, you know, has arrived here, became a student, you know, committed to the local community and um, has, uh, you know, now sought uh, election. I think I got most of that, and I and I think I, I really enjoyed it. It's it's a question that I, I think I, I I dwell on a bit, but uh, I don't know if anyone has ever asked me so directly. Um, yeah, it's uh it's it's strange. Um, you know, coming into the role uh, is really bizarre when you know on the one hand, you know I when I was elected, I was as old as the council tenure of the person I succeeded. The guy who had been the council member before me had been a city council member for 22 years, and I was 22 when I was elected, which I find hilarious. Um, but the way that that usually manifested itself, you know, I, every once in a while, you know, uh, this happened less recently, but I'd have yeah, colleagues or coworkers, um, you know, just in in the tiniest in the tiniest moments, uh, you know, refer to or like think it important to bring up that I was the same age as their their son or, or daughter. Um, and like the subtext of that is like, you should listen to me because I could be your dad. Uh, <laughs> it's just very strange dynamics. Um, but you know, I, I will say the, uh, the the role is really built in a way that um, that's that counterbalances, you know, any of those, those elements. Um, you know, everyone on the council has one vote, um, all, all nine of us. And, you know, advocates, lobbyists, whoever, they need to work just as hard to, to uh, convince me of something as they do someone who's, who's been on the council for, for forever and a half. Um, and I'll touch too on, you know, the, the Berkeley loyalty question. It's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I uh, was an out-of-state student. Um, I have a lot of relationship to the city. My, my aunt lives, I don't know, like, 10 blocks that way and like six blocks that way. I had been around the city most of my, um, you know, for, for the occasional Thanksgiving or, or winter break um, on and off my, through my childhood. So I, you know, I've known the area, I wanted to come here and that that relationship is, has buoyed me a lot. Um, but it's certainly, you know, there there's a, a sentiment, for example, that, uh, you know, students are transients. They're, uh, they're temporary and they're, they're not taxpayers. And so they don't, they don't deserve a, a say in, a, in the, the governing of the city or the future of it. Um, and that comes out really explicitly when you have 
students coming to city council meetings asking for for one change or another. Um, but it comes out more subtly when you have uh, folks sort of implying that, um, you know, because I'm not like a, a homeowner in the city and I haven't paid my dues and tax money over a couple decades, like my opinion doesn't matter, um, which is not true. Uh, but again, I mean, that's the sort of thing that you just, if I let that get to me, I wouldn't be able to do my job. And that's, that's weird to get used to. Uh, I wanted to ask you about People Park. Yeah, That's in your please. district, yes? That's always, that's always good. So what yeah. about People's Park? What are, yeah. what are the for Park? And um, what, what, what should be done with it? I think I got most of that. I, I can work with that. Yeah. Um, there have been so many proposals to develop the park over decades that have failed for, uh, for good reason. Um, but I, I don't think this latest proposal that we're looking at is, is like that. Uh, and I think, honestly, a lot of that has to do with the, the folks that it's, it's coming from. Um, it's a challenging space that, I, that is, you know, really is a, a, a sanctuary um, for, for a lot of folks. I mean, there's, you know, on and off, uh, I, I've done a couple, um, you know, walkabouts with uh, Ari Newlight. He's the, uh, the social worker employed by the campus to, to help the folks there, who does such such an incredible job it honestly it's it's mesmerizing seeing the the way that he works he has this massive gigantic backpack that's like bigger than he is and he rolls around and people people see him and they're like ari how you doing you know what's uh what's the status on my paperwork because in addition to like you know running around with socks and toothbrushes and anything people need like he's also everyone's mailbox um and the like gateway to uh oh mason i see your comment thank you yes let me zoom out. Okay, for those of us uh, that have uh, have not spent too much time on Southside, so there's a plot of land three blocks south of campus in the heart of Southside uh, that today is called People's Park. Um, decades ago, it was it was a neighborhood. Um, the university acquired the land, demolished it with the intent to build a residence hall. Um, and then just like royally failed to do so. The lot is like stagnant, vacant for, for years. Um, and then eventually when the campus is like, all right, let's do it, we're gonna build on it. Um, the community, students especially, uh, came together in this really beautiful, incredible way to try to reclaim the park from the, uh, from the UC um, as, a, as a community park, a, a shared space. And this was 1968, I think, you know, height of so much of the you know, free speech movement, proximity, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, and they, uh, they tried to take back the park and the, uh, the governor did not like that. Uh, there was a whole ruckus, people got shot, bad situation. Um, but the park was, was never, was never built on. And the, um, the campus has been in this strange crusade to, to develop it largely since then. And in the meantime, it's become this, this incredible and complicated and really truly almost ungoverned space that in some ways feels like an effective uh, you know, sanctioned encampment almost. Um, and in so many other ways really isn't. I mean, until recently, there really have not been for all intents and purposes uh, people you know, living at the park in the most real terms. I mean, UCPD sweeps the park regularly. Um, better if they, that is its own thing. Um, 
yeah, it's, it's a very complicated and strange dynamic space. Um, there have been proposals to just build it into a, a new student dormitory before that have failed because that would uh, eliminate this resource for dozens of people that depend on that space today. Uh, there have been proposals to, to build a parking lot out of it that have failed for their, their own reasons. Um, but what we're looking at right now is, is a, I think really in a lot of ways, a much more elegant proposal um, that would break the park into sort of three parallel projects. Um, a massive supportive housing center, uh, supportive housing for current and recently homeless individuals up to, we're looking at like 150 beds on one end of the park, and then student dormitories uh, on the other end, and then preserved open space in between. Uh, and it, it creates sort of a, you know, a really interesting and challenging puzzle that uh, I, I empathize with, with everyone that has complicated uh, feelings about it. I, I understand and empathize with people who oppose it outright and don't think anything should ever be developed on the park. I think where I've, where I've landed um, really is a, a place of yeah, cautious but optimistic enthusiasm about it because a supportive housing, transitional housing really, it's the one piece of this puzzle that goes the furthest to, to actually put a dent in our homelessness numbers. Um, having dozens and dozens and dozens, or, or in our case, you know, upwards of a thousand people living on the streets is not a, a solution for them either. Every one of those people should be housed. Um, and we have very limited bandwidth to do that. Uh, the construction of this project would represent a massive increase in the city's entire capacity for actual supportive housing to, to get people off of the streets into a space with, with case managers uh, and supportive services to, to ultimately get them housed and, and potentially even you know, employed in their own right again to make sure they can get the, the mental health resources they need. Um, and it's, a, it's an opportunity that doesn't come around easily or often. And it's it's strange navigating around because the, the campus obviously has some uh, some varied interests at play here. You know, for them to try to partner with the city in creating this this massive supportive housing complex um, is a big deal. But there's also folks on the campus that have been hoping to, and folks in the community and neighborhood who have been hoping to demolish People's Park just outright for any reason for decades. And it's it's weird enabling that, but for what I think. For the first time in years, actually, is a uh, is a good reason. Um, I was really compelled by. Uh, I got coffee recently with him. Um, he keeps telling me not to share his name because he's nervous. Okay, so he he was one of the he basically he was one of the founders of People's Park. He um he claims to have been the the first body that hit the fence when they when they stormed the park and after they they took it back he planted a number of the trees that are still there today. He uh, he built the um. He helped dig out the the reflecting pool that didn't end up happening because the committee and the organizers couldn't decide whether they wanted to have a reflecting pool or not, so there isn't one. Um, but he, you know, he told me that uh, <laughs> that Berkeley is um, is full of extremists, and he says that he knows that because he was one, um, and that's he believes so deeply in the vision of People's Park and has for years, um, but feels today that it uh, it isn't accomplishing. Um, what it was meant to, uh, and that it isn't serving the people who who stay there right now in the in the ways that they that they need to be served. Um, and so, you know, despite having been part of the the origin story of the space, he he's really enthusiastic about an approach to do something new with it, but one that really centers the uh, the relationship the space has to the the homelessness crisis. Um, 
which was you know which was which was touching to me but everybody everybody has uh deeply emotional and, and complicated feelings about the space it's it's been contested over for a very long time um hi um question i had you you mentioned very early on in the presentation about um uh demolition laws uh regarding uh rent controlled units in berkeley if i remember correctly yeah and um i actually uh i i'm like signed on to the berkeley Tent union's um like emailing list and i just got oh, an email this morning about um uh like a new amendment to the demolition ordinance uh that they're actually ha going to have a meeting about at like seven tonight um because they're changing it so that uh uh units replaced by uh like uh let's see units replaced uh in new buildings would count towards the city's inclusionary requirements even if they were already like rent control units were what was being replaced and that it's basically um going to be a way for people to to take down uh affordable housing and then use that for for um towards things such as the state density bonus and stuff right right actually building new housing is that something that they're they're urging people to to come out to the meeting tonight at seven is that something that you would like recommend to people. Right. Um, no, and, and one, I'm glad you're plugged in and, and on a BTU's list. Uh, there is not a city council meeting tonight at seven. Uh, and for a moment there, I was like, do oh, I? Have sorry, a yes. Planning commission. Planning um, commission. Well, I was going to say it would probably be the planning commission or the the housing advisory commission. Um, and that it's worth it's worth noting too for for everyone's context. So there um, there's a city council, nine members, eight districts, one mayor, uh, and then we have this network of city commissions that are advisory to the city council, almost all of which are also nine people comprised of one appointee from each council member. They're basically volunteer positions, um, although there is a low income stipend that is so minuscule. And I put in an item last week to modernize that and update it to, it's, it's embarrassing is what it is. Um, so worth plugging if you're interested in getting involved in the governance of the city there are always commission vacancies somewhere you should uh feel free to reach out and we can see where where it makes sense to plug you in um but yeah uh the commission space is where honestly so much of the nitty-gritty of a lot of projects and uh proposals that end up coming before council uh gets cranked out um and because it's made of appointees of every single council member um you know there, there's a certain level of good tactful deference to the uh to the commissions on the the purview and subject areas that they that they look at you know if you get a unanimous vote from the planning commission about uh an important zoning change it would be complicated and potentially controversial for the city council to say actually we want to do something else uh and we can i mean the the commissions are advisory to the city council um but so often you know for for groups like the berkeley tenants union or, or what have you you know if there's a a change that you want the council to approve the most important place to to massage that language to, to get in the amendments that you want is usually at the commission level where it's a little more lower profile and um, and a lot more accessible in a lot of ways. Um, I have not looked at whatever item they're uh, they're playing with tonight. Um, but if you've never been to a, a commission meeting before, I would I would highly highly encourage you to to call in. If nothing else, just to to see how they they operate. It's um it's a fun space. 
Thank you so much, Ryder. Yeah, you got it. I'm reminded too of, uh, yeah, our demolition ordinance has been coming up a lot recently because there's a, a building the campus just acquired that they intend to demolish, which we have. Oh, is that what I sound like? <laughs> so nasally. Really? God. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they intend to demolish to, to build some new student housing. Um, and we're pretty unhappy about it because the, uh, you know, if a, if a private property owner had acquired the building um, and wanted to destroy it, uh, it would be much more complicated too. And they would have to, because they're, they're rent controlled units in the building, they would have to um, basically you know, relocate those um, or, or just be prevented from doing so outright. We really try to preserve what limited rent control unit stock we have. Um, but because the UC is a state agency, they buy the building and are basically not affected by any of our, our local laws. Like our, our local minimum wage law doesn't apply to the, the campus or campus employees. So it took a little while for the campus to catch up, even though they're the biggest employer in the city. Um, so that's that's been a little fraught. Um, so like our, our demolition ordinance is not able to apply to this building where it has a very clear need for it to, to apply because as a state agency, they can just ignore everything we do. Should we go to student questions, Professor Cohen? There's a bunch in the chat or you guys can also just raise your hands. So there are. Yeah, maybe we could back up and um, the first one that I'm seeing is uh, what is a way you would recommend getting involved in local government? Mason, do you wanna come on and say what you're thinking here? I yeah, I would, I would love to. Um, my consideration, especially for those interested in, you know, at least interacting with local govern, uh, government, maybe not running ourselves, is how we can get involved uh, past just the emails and the phone calling that people recommend, especially in this time of lockdown. Like, what would you recommend either for us doing uh, for our own political knowledge and know-how, as well as how can we interact with our local governments? Absolutely. Um, wait, that's right. Okay. And so we mean, we mean everywhere. Can I, can I ask where you live? Like, are you, are you in Berkeley right now? I actually am a San Francisco native, um, oh, cool. but I'm Wonderful. in Phoenix, Arizona right now with my fiance. So Wonderful. I was born in Mesa right outside, actually. Well, wow, um, that's so cool. My main and primary answer, uh, you know, related to what a uh, camera and I were just talking about really is the, the commissions, um, structure that, that is pretty parallel city to city to city. The city. There's always a lot of advocacy work to be done, organizations you can plug into that will help you lobby your elected officials on you know, items coming before the council, items you want somebody to, to introduce. Um, but if you really, I mean, you want to have your, your hands on the legislation and help, I mean, basically be a, you know, a volunteer policymaker. Almost every city has a, a commission structure. You know, I, I really, I think of my appointees on the commissions as like, we need to council members. I mean, they, they, basically are the council member for that purview and subject area, except that the recommendations of the commission are advisory, not final. Um, so like, you know, my, uh, my pointy on the, the transportation commission uh, really is, you know, that commission creates their set of priorities um, for our, you know, our, our bike network that we're working on. And then that list and that, that lineup um, comes to the city and the city council approves it or may may tinker with it but so much of the initial work that goes into actually kind of creating i mean it's like it's like a, it's like a 
it's like a group project. You know, if you have one person in the group that like does the first draft, like we're all just going to kind of go with it, but like tinker with it a little to make it work. But like that first draft has a huge say in like the direction the project is going. That's like the role of these commissions. Um, so when our, our public works commission puts together our, our street repaving plan, um, they create that first huge list of like what we're going to try to crank out that year. And then council usually at most tinkers with it. Um, and all those commissioners there, they're volunteers. I mean, they're there because uh, their council member entrusted them with uh, with that role. And sometimes it's because they have a deep relationship that goes back years. Um, but a lot of the time, it's just because they have a vacancy and they need to fill it. So if you ask, that might work out. I guess my, my quick follow-up to that mm -hmm. is, um, in order to connect with these city council members and also to see what uh, positions are open, how do people, you know, how do you Google that so that people yeah. can m more easily get involved? Right. Yeah. Funny thing about our jobs, you know, our contact information is all very you know, public record. Um, so for the city of Berkeley, especially, and I imagine it's similar for every city, um, on the webpage about commissions, so cityberkeley.info slash commissions, there's a tab that has the, the vacancy roster. So it'll show you a list of all our like 30 something commissions, which is a ridiculous number of commissions to have, or 30 something commissions and which council members have vacancies on them. Um, and then that, that gives you a sense of direction. So if you know like, I'm passionate about the environment and I want to be on the community environmental advisory commission, even though I live in district one, I go to that roster and I see that the council members for districts three and six have vacancies, then that's who I want to harass. Great. Um, I saw another one from Akil and another one from Sade. Do you guys want to ah. ask questions? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I was just wondering, um, <clears throat> how affordable it is to be like a city council member full time and live in Berkeley, given like the really high cost of living here? It's a really funny question, Akil. Um, and timely. Uh, so I, the answer to your question is no. How do you afford living in Berkeley on a city council salary? My answer is no. Um, is it usually a full-time job? Yes. Okay, uh, so we, we have had a very broken system that we just fixed. Um, for years, the uh, city council member role has been defined in the city charter as being part-time, even though it's very much a full-time job for everyone. Um, actually, it's I should I should admit this. When I when I ran in 2018, when I announced I was running in May, April, I guess, 2018, um, it was under the impression that the council was going to vote to change that that November because that was the plan. They were going to put a measure on the ballot to modernize the council salaries, um, to bring them up to, to current numbers and also to redefine the role as full-time. Because I mean, there's obvious equity implications here. You know, if, if it's a full-time job, but it only pays part-time, you're only going to have people running for office that can afford to only be paid part-time for a full-time job, which severely narrows the the window of folks you're talking about. I mean, you're probably talking about people who are already retired and kind of want to do this as a volunteer gig or people who um, are independently wealthy or have a, a spouse that's the, the breadwinner um, or people who are just, uh, you know, have no sense of self-worth and uh, are willing to just be broke. 
uh, and I guess that's me. I don't know. Um, so I, when I announced, it was with the expectation they were going to put that on the ballot, and then they ended up pulling it off the ballot for reasons that seemed like a good idea at the time. In retrospect, they were not. Um, but they, they put it back on the ballot this year, um, and it passed with flying colors, which uh, honestly, I, I have to wonder how much I, I have to do with that, because I, I, so I, I've been a barista for um, the last year, basically, the, the first year of the term, I decided, you know, I really wanted to, you know, make sure I was totally uninhibited, uh, you know, knew there was a steep learning curve, um, didn't want to pick up anything else that would complicate my relationship to the role, um, do it as full time as I could. Uh, and so I did, and I, I had a, a roommate during that time. Um, and then the second year, uh, you know, being an adult, I you know, thought it was not unreasonable to think that, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't need to have a roommate anymore. Unfortunately, in the city of Berkeley, working on a part-time salary, what that meant, um, moving into my single, was that my rent made up 60% of my income from City Hall, which is not a super sustainable place to be. Um, so I've been a, I've been a barista. I, I work at the, uh, the Pete's on 4th Street to this day um, on weekends, uh, which doesn't mean it doesn't cut into my, my time as a city council member. I'm still a full-time city council member, um, but then I work weekends at Pete's, uh, which just means I haven't had a weekend since the before time, uh, which is, you know, again, not a, not a great arrangement. Um, but, you know, I, I hope in part because people, you know, have been appreciating more recently what, uh, you know, what value there is in having a diversity of perspectives on the city council. We, we put the measure on the ballot um, and it passed with flying colors. I mean, it was something like 65% of the vote to recognize that, you know, our council members are full-time, they should be compensated full-time. Um, and so I had to send a really funny email to my manager at Pete's like, hey, if this local ballot measure passes, I'm quitting. Uh, and they thought that was really funny and have been, have been really good about it. So that works out. As soon as that goes into effect, um, I'll be done, which, which means right now I have a, in my Twitter bio, it says I make laws and lattes, which I think is cute. And that won't be true for long. Hi, um, thank you so much for all the information you gave. My question was uh, regarding like, imposter syndrome and um like you are elected at such such a young age that can be empowering but the other side of that is um suffering with like imposter syndrome so i was wondering do you suffer with that and if you do how do you conquer it actively totally it's so weird i um yeah this is a uh, i guess you know the, the role is a little less direct and in your face in person these days because the whole world is on zoom but it was so disorienting, you know, the, the first time's a, it's a strange role, you know, it's, it's really not that much authority, you have a lot of, you know, say in, um, you know, particularly long-term planning and, and uh, you know, budget allocations in your city, uh, but the compulsion people have to treat you like a little prince, it's so bizarre, you know, I'll like roll into a big community meeting of, um, you know, the, the whoever advocacy group and, um, I'll show up a little late because of who I am as a person and they're, they're talking and they're, you know, they're in the middle of the program. Uh, and then someone will come up to whoever is the MC and like whisper something in their ear and they'll be like, Oh, damn, we're, we're so honored to be joined by, by the honorable. They have to call me the honorable like state law. They, they have to call me the honorable council member Robinson. And then like the entire room of heads, like pivot to the back where I am like stuffing my face with carrots and celery 
because the only reason I came was for the free food, just like in college. And, and that's disorienting. I'm like, that's, that's not me. I'm a child. Um, but I, but I, but I, but I deal with it. You know, I think the, the thing that I'm most grateful for, and that's been most useful in that, um, you know, there were a couple particular reasons that really had nothing to do with the role and the strange kind of psychological effect it has on you um, that I, I started seeing a therapist in, in 2018. It um, had nothing to do with any of that, but I, I'm grateful that I, in none of the moments when it would have been easy for me to stop because I thought I didn't need it anymore, um, I never did. And it's, it's been, it's been very valuable because it, uh, and, you know, so much of the role, it just, you know, it, it's a lot. It messes with you. Hi, Hi I was, uh, our final project is about running a campaign for either a ballot initiative or a campaign or a candidate for office or something. Oh, I was wondering cool. what are some of the challenges that you faced in your campaign and how you overcame those challenges? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, I'll say, I think a lot of, I felt so lucky running where I did um, because there's a lot of really novel things that are being tried in Berkeley that help. Um, you know, I think of two systems in particular, one being ranked choice voting and another being uh, public financing of elections and, and public financing especially, um, you know, had a really, really powerful relationship to, to my race. What, what public financing basically means is that the, uh, the city has a pool of money um, and candidates that opt into this public financing system agree to this like comedically low contribution limit. It's $50. Um, so in some city council races, you know, you got people donating like thousands and thousands of dollars to, to candidates so that after they win, they own them because that's how this line of work works. Um, but in Berkeley, you opt into the public financing system and the max contribution anyone can donate to you is $50. Um, but if they're a Berkeley resident and they donate to you any number of money uh, below $50, you turn that piece of paperwork into the city and then the city contributes six times that much to your campaign. Um, and it's sort of nuts because it's like the city is creating this pool of money to fund campaigns for public office. That seems like a strange use of public funds. But what it does is really equitize the, the act of running for office, period. Uh, and it makes running accessible or, or available to people who, who don't have a massive fundraising network or uh, network of of donors at their disposal. So, you know, when I was, when I was running, um, and actually, you know, most of my contributions from, from Berkeley residents were from students and it, uh, you know, it was a lot easier to convince someone to drop $10 on, uh, on my campaign. It's like, that's, that's a burrito with guac. Like we can, can we, can we forego like one of those, like, please, but then that, that multiplies out to, you know, with the additional six fold contribution from the city, that $10 donation becomes $70. And very quickly, it's possible for someone with no network, with no money coming into the race, I couldn't like self finance myself to actually be able to afford to finance a, a campaign. Um, and that's that has been totally transformative for the, the sorts of folks that are that are able to even consider um, trying to govern the city in a place like Berkeley. Uh, and not too many cities have picked up a project like that. You know, we were one of the uh, the first big ones. Um, yeah, exciting stuff.
my campaign was fueled by burritos or foregone burritos fueled by the absence <laughs> of burritos. Well, moving on from, uh, you know, burritos and free food at the back, of, you know, um, you know, the, I, I, what, what are your ambitions going forward, Rigel? Uh, what do you mean, Professor Cohen? No, I mean, I was here's the part of the thing is like, I mean, are there, ter- first of all, are there term limits to the Berkeley City Council? And one yeah. of the things we see in California politics is this kind of merry-go-round of people taking up job after job after job because they get yeah. termed out. And yeah. so- yeah, what are your ambitions? It is a really wild question, and one that um, one that I I spend a lot of time thinking about, um, and I you know just very openly and honestly, I um, you know, I haven't quite uh, quite settled on. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a lot of poetry to the seat that I'm sitting in. Um, you know, it's a seat designed by and won by students, um, and an interesting relationship that a four year term and a uh, you know traditional four year uh, undergraduates uh, course load as is that, you know, almost every time the seat is up for election, a huge chunk of the electorate in the district has, uh, has turned out. And it's, it's a lot of new residents. Um, the council member that I succeeded uh, served in the role for 22 years. Um, I don't see myself doing that. Uh, but you know, before before the salary change, um, you know, there were some real questions that I had asked myself both about the future of the seat, the future of the city, um, but also also myself. Um, if the salary measure hadn't passed, I think I can be honest and admit that I would have been. I think I would have been in my right to rule out running for re-election, and for my literal only priority to be um, finding the right person to to pass the torch to, because uh, it would not be super sustainable to be literally unable to save anything spending 60% of my income on rent for my entire 20s. That'd be eight years. It's weird signing yourself up for yeah, most jobs. You, know, you, you renew your contract. It's not a four-year arrangement. It's complicated. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think the, the factors that I'll have to consider when I, I look at running again are, are A, you know, there's uh, someone promising that uh, you know, I think could, could make as much or even more of the role uh, than I did. Um, and also, you know, frankly, the, the situation the, the city's in. Um, the pandemic has, has changed everything, and it's, it's totally possible that we'll be in recovery mode uh, in a very real sense for, for longer than we, we would have imagined otherwise. And unfortunately, that creates a, a particular environment where you know, institutional memory and knowledge is a lot more valuable than it is during you know, normal times, if you will. Um, it's a lot to consider. Who knows? I, um, Professor Cohen, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Does that answer your question? I think you do. I appreciate your humility, <laughs> though. I really do. You know, I, I think that that's really valuable. It's, I think your sense of humor so well, and I, I hope <laughs> you know, retain that, hold on to that, and that the nimbyism of doesn't drive that out of you. I, I appreciate that. It's all I, I just, I, you know, I will I, say to, to think, your um, question, it, uh, yeah. No, I just, uh, I just wanted to, to thank you for your contributions to the city of Berkeley, uh, to District 7, to the students that you represent, and uh, particularly to thank you for coming on uh, today. I'm sorry for my technical problems. I think like it's gone very smoothly for me this semester. So all the gremlins got me on the last day. <laughs> so I, I feel I'm sorry. I don't want, 
I, 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 I feel that uh, my Wi-Fi has been disrespectful to you in your presentation, so I apologize. You're for that. so fine. Oh my God, I've seen so much worse. And I, you know, now that um, uh, Napolitano is on the uh, on the board of Zoom, right? I'll, I'll blame her. Yeah, exactly. From from Homeland Security to the University of California at Berkeley to Zoom, like what career trajectory? It just no. like it perfectly triangulated. Um, but yeah, I think it, I do want to offer an opportunity to um, for Sorrow and I to just present last words here. And I just want to, I would, if if that's all right, to offer Sorrow the last word here and just say my my goodbyes here. But to to just start by saying thank you, Rigel, for uh, for being here. Uh, thank you for your service to City of Berkeley. Uh, congratulations on your election. Uh, we look forward to you running again in two years, maybe, maybe not. Uh, good luck with that raise. Um, but I, I do just want to thank uh, everyone that's had anything to do with this class. This is our last day. This is our last moment. I just want to thank all of you, uh, particularly the students, for having the courage to sign up for such a bizarre experiment. I want to offer the deepest possible thanks to all of the GSIs that made this class possible, especially Natasha Ford, who was the head GSI and worked with me all summer uh, to get the technical aspects of this class right and to build the B courses site and to talk over every assignment, every conceivable piece and part of this. Um, she's been my partner in this class from the beginning, and I want to thank her deeply. I want to thank um, Ana Lacona, uh, Ree Levitt, um, Karen Viegas, uh, John, John, Kevin Rigby, the uh, the other GSIs who all of the students know so well, who've done an incredible job with this. I want to thank the people at UCTV and Educational Technology Services and, and the University of California more generally for uh, spawning this class. Uh, I just to um, you know all of you for um, participating in this class and in this experiment in public education for an educated public. And, and then lastly, I just want to thank the best possible way. Uh, to thank my co-professor, Aro Jaraman, it's been a real honor to spend this semester working with you. I have learned a tremendous amount sitting, listening to you and to the speakers that you've brought in. Uh, it has changed my perspective in all sorts of ways. Um, I, I have easily learned as much from this class as any of you sitting in those Zoom seats. And, and I, um, I, I, I owe that to my co-professor, to Professor Jai Raman. This has been a, a real honor uh, and an opportunity um, to learn from her. Uh, and I think that if, if I may say so myself, I think we've made a pretty powerful partnership. So thank you. And I will give, uh, offer the start of the last word. Thank you so much, Professor Cohen. That was so nice. And, and I feel exactly the same way. I've definitely learned so much from you and from this class and from the students and from the speakers. Um, I really want to thank you, Professor Cohen, for coming up with the idea for the class and then like driving it and doing all the work to get it set up, which I know is a ton of work. I really, really appreciate that. Um, thank you, Rigel, for joining us today. Thank you uh, also to the GSIs. I know you did a lot of the work of the semester, <laughs> just answering all the questions and um, you know, really being there for the students in a difficult semester. Um, and and I, I, I also wanna thank you students. Um, look, I think, you know, throughout the, for most of the semester, we were, we were, uh, we were talking about an election between a genuine fascist who's proven himself to be a genuine fascist um, and uh, and and something else, and 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 it's important to remember and recognize that until November third, 
we were so much of the country was united in its pushback against fascism and, and people on the right, people on the left and people in a spectrum of the left. Um, and remember from Professor Cohen's great lecture that what is left and right and center changes over time. But um, certainly in this moment, in this year, there was such unity against fascism. And I think what's important to think about now is that that may not exist anymore, right? There, there may not be a fascist. Hopefully there will not be a fascist. There will be though a neoliberal administration. That is for certain. And so in a neoliberal administration, much of our unity falls apart. And it is a question of whether we toe the line and we you know, stick with the old guard and the old way of doing things, whether we think it's wise to return to the way things were before the pandemic, whether we think that way worked for most Americans, or whether we not only push for and demand a new way of thinking and doing things, but that we're actually out in the streets mobilizing for that new vision. That is the real question. Will we sit back and accept a neoliberal uh, administration or will we demand something else? And I, I'm so grateful to you as students because my all of my hope lies with you. <laughs> Your ability, whether it's running for office as Rigel did, or hopefully you're out in the streets with me and Professor Cohen and others um, demanding an entirely new vision for this country, one that frankly, as we've talked about through the class, even much of the right has admitted most of the country agrees with. Most of the country wants universal health care and higher wages and clim climate change to be addressed. Most of the country agrees with that, whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call it progressive or whatever you want to call it, most of the people agree with some kind of universal care for people and the planet. And, um, and the only question is most of the, whether most of the people will fight for that, whether most of the people will push for that, whether most of the people will not sit back and expect a neoliberal, neoliberal administration, regardless of party, to deliver that for us because they will not. Today's lecture reminded me of something we really studied deeply last semester called co-governance. The idea that um, in many countries, social movements actually work to get their own elected. And then when they're elected, they hold them accountable and they hold them. They push on their friends and they hold those folks also, you know, uh, hold them in, hold them, support them. Because it's not gonna help us to get our people elected, not even Rigel, not even AOC, if we don't provide the wind and the support uh, for those folks to actually carry out the policies that everybody wants and needs. So co-governance is a different vision for how we govern collectively. It's one in which we're out in the streets and being out in the streets actually supports those in office. So my hope and my prayer is that you get engaged in some form, whether it is running for office or engaging in social movements or in whatever form you think is best, but that you help us push for that new vision because it is so desperately, desperately needed. So thank you, Professor Cohen, for creating the space and the platform for this to happen. Um, and thank you to all of you and to UCTV and to Berkeley, everybody at Berkeley who helped to make it happen.